Hello and welcome to the first in our series of Banking Litigation Podcasts, where we'll be bringing you updates on key developments for financial institutions uh, in the sector. I am David Barr and keeping us on our Banking Litigation toes each month will be Kerry Morgan, our PSL for Banking Litigation. And we're also joined today by our guests, Nick Patmore, one of our associates here in the Banking Litigation team, and Rupert Lewis, our head of practice. So just before we get started, uh, Rupert, why have we gone for a podcast? Ah, thanks, David. Hi, everybody. Podcast. Well, um, we do, as a practice, do a lot of education for our clients. Um, we do written e-bulletins. Uh, we do face-to-face talks uh, for our clients. All of those are very important. But we thought we'd try something different and we'd try a podcast. A podcast allows us to provide education in bite-sized chunks um, around about 10 minutes each month on areas of interest. Um, it's very accessible. You can access a podcast via the App Store and via Google Play. You can subscribe for it there. Uh, and also it allows for our clients to listen to this education um, on the go, if you like. So whether they're on the commute, uh, whether they're at home doing the household chores, um, you can you can listen to this podcast uh, anywhere and everywhere. So that's the reason uh, for the podcast. Brilliant. Um, and Kerry, can you give us a bit more detail about the sort of exact format that these podcasts are going to take? Yes, of course. Thank you, David. So we're going to be doing two different types of podcast. The first type will be a regular monthly edition where we will cover a number of recent cases of interest. Uh, And each month we will select one case where we'll do a deep dive and go into a bit more detail as to why it's of interest in the sector. The other type of podcast will be a special edition where we will look at a particular topic of interest for in-house lawyers. So if out there listeners, you have any particular topics that you would like us to address, then please do email me. My details are in the show notes, Kerry Morgan, or contact your regular HSF contact. Brilliant. Thanks, Kerry. Uh, Thanks to you both. And thanks to Rupert. I'm sure we'll uh, be seeing you again later on in the series. But to get back to this edition, uh, we're going to be looking back over some key recent judgments. Uh, We're going to start off with a case likely to be of interest to those exercising corporate trustee functions. Um, And here we've got some practical steps to take when applying for declaratory relief as a trustee. So, Kerry, can you kick us off? Thank you, David. So this first case is Bank of New York Mellon and SR Steel India. Uh, Claims for declaratory relief are a procedural tool embraced by trustees who want to take action but want to get the court seal of approval first. So here we have an example where the High Court refused to grant declarations that were sought by a trustee. Those declarations concerned the amounts that were due and payable by the issuer of unsecured notes. Now, that would seem to be quite a factual point that one would expect the court to grant the declaration sought if they're correct on the facts. But where this judgment is quite useful is in looking at why the claim was rejected by the court, as it provides some guidance to those exercising corporate trustee functions to get a better result. So, if a trustee is considering applying to the court for declaratory relief, what should the trustee do? In this case, the court noted a number of steps, for example, that could be taken by trustees in that position, including the evidence to be put before the court and also noting which parties should be joined to the proceedings. Uh, I can't go into details in this podcast, but it's worth a closer read for those in a similar position. We've got a banking litigation e-bulletin on this case, uh, which you can find details of in the show notes. 
Thanks, Kerry. Now, Nick, you've been looking at a couple of decisions which will be of interest to, to lenders, haven't you? So we've got one looking at the exercise of a contractual discretion by a lender and the second considering the obligations imposed on creditors. So what have you got for us, Nick? Uh, thanks, David. The first case is UBS and Rose Capital Ventures, and it's an example of the trend we've seen in relation to contractual discretions. This is an argument that a public law-type duty should be imported in some way to govern the exercise of a contractual discretion. It's a hot topic for banks in the lending sector, and more generally we see it in financial agreements outside the lending sector too. In this particular case, we had a bank that had provided a mortgage facility, and that included an absolute discretion to call in the loan before the expiry of the term. What's significant here is that the court held that the exercise of discretion was not subject to a Braganza-type duty, Uh, And just to recap, that means a duty to exercise discretion in a way that is not irrational, arbitrary, capricious and or unreasonable. This is all public law terminology which has been borrowed in certain commercial cases such as Braganza and Sokima before it. But here, the court did not impose the duty, so there was no fetter on the bank's discretion at all, which is good news for banks. In fact, the judgment went even further in suggesting that even if a bank was subject to a fetter on its discretion it wasn't required to provide reasons for its decision to call in the loan where the borrowers couldn't show a prima facie case of rationality or a breach of good faith. The second case, the case of General Mediterranean Holding and Kukom Haps Holdings, here we had a claim brought by a creditor to recover a loan and that claim was brought against both the principal debtor and the guarantor. In this context, the guarantor who was trying to avoid liability was saying that the creditor had failed to take steps to protect the security and the details of that argument aren't really important to understand the key legal point. What the court said was that actually a creditor doesn't have an absolute duty to make sure that a surety can have recourse to a security. And in fact, the creditor couldn't be obliged to incur any large expenditure or run a big risk to preserve or maintain that security. So good news for creditors here. Thanks, Nick. So, moving away from lenders then, we're going to have a look at two cases considering privilege and disclosure. Now, Kerry, these cases just keep on coming, don't they? And you've you've chosen a couple of interesting new cases to discuss for this episode, including our our deep dive for the month. Um, Can you tell us a bit more? Yes, thank you, David. So, the first case I'm going to discuss with you is WH Holding and E20 Stadium. I've chosen this case for this episode's deep dive because it represents yet another Court of Appeal decision taking a more restrictive approach to privilege. It's not good news from the perspective of financial institutions, um, but it's an important one to be aware of so that you can take steps to maximise the likelihood of documents being protected. It's a really interesting case. We've essentially got the Court of Appeals saying that emails between a company's board members, which were discussing a proposal for settling a dispute, were not covered by litigation privilege. Somewhat surprising. The court said that for a communication to fall within litigation privilege, the dominant purpose of that communication has to be obtaining advice or evidence in relation to the conduct of litigation. So it wouldn't be enough that there is some dominant purpose that more broadly relates to litigation. This is something that hadn't been clear from the case law before this decision. It was argued that SFO and ENRC extended the scope of litigation privilege beyond recognised categories of advice or evidence, but this was rejected by the court, um, although the court did say that ENRC confirmed that the conduct of litigation includes avoiding that litigation or compromising. 
perhaps tellingly, the court added, and I'll just read it out briefly, uh, we do not consider that there is any justification for extending the scope of litigation privilege in that respect. It's always been recognised that privilege is an inroad into the principle that a court should be able to decide disputes with the aid of all relevant material. Now, this decision is likely to lead to practical difficulties in applying litigation privilege, given that there can be loads of communications or documents which are aimed at conducting litigation, including avoiding or settling it, but which don't actually fall within the category of obtaining advice or evidence. A slight glimmer of hope came from the fact that litigation privilege was said to apply if advice or information obtained for conducting litigation can't in effect be disentangled from a document or if it would otherwise reveal the nature of that advice or information. So there we are, likely to be a fairly challenging decision when it comes to putting it into practice. And we've got a litigation blog post on this decision, which you can find details of in the show notes. My second case is EQ Group and HSBC. Uh, in this case, the court gave us a pretty stark reminder of the restrictions on the collateral use of disclosed documents under CPR 3122. The judgment emphasised that the restrictions on collateral use apply to information that derives from disclosed documents, just in the same way that they apply to the documents themselves. And of course, the restrictions will also prevent a party using disclosed documents or information derived from them in briefing its own lawyers, if that's for some purpose other than the proceedings that the documents are disclosed in. So collateral use, still a set of very strict restrictions. And again, we've got a litigation blog post on this decision too. Brilliant. Thanks, Kerry. Um, And we're going to wrap up with a misrepresentation case from Nick. Uh, And and Nick, this is such a common cause of action in claims uh, against banks, and so it's helpful to to keep on top of any new developments. Uh, What case have you been looking at, Nick? Thanks, David. A common sense one here. A case of Al-Hawazi and Nottingham Forest Football Club. Here we've got a High Court decision, but it was in fact an appeal from the decision of a master. And in summary, the High Court looked at an entire agreement clause in a commercial contract and held that liability for statutory misrepresentation, and that's a claim for under Section 2 of the Misrep Act, was not excluded. To be honest, this summary sounds obvious and unsurprising, but it was an important decision because it re-emphasises the generally accepted position from which the master's decision had seemed to depart. In general, the effect of an entire agreement statement of itself will be to avoid representations becoming contractual terms, rather than excluding liability for misrepresentation. Where a party wishes to avoid liability for misrepresentation, more will be needed, such as a non-reliance wording or an express exclusion of liability. Thanks, Nick. Um, Again, there is a a link to a blog post about this particular decision. Again, uh, more information in the the show notes. So thank you. uh, Thank you to both Kerry and to Nick, our guests this week, for taking us through those judgments. I, for one, am now feeling bang up to date on current banking litigation decisions. And if those of you listening are feeling the same way, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and if you can't wait another month for your next dose of banking litigation updates, do sign up to our banking litigation e-bulletin, and you'll find more information in the show notes there. That's it for this edition. We'll be back next month to update you on what's been happening in the banking litigation sector. Until then, thanks again to Kerry and to our guest this week, Nick, and thanks to you for listening.